Yeah, y'all. Camp Kidsway was awesome. I went one day, I was there on one day, there were kids everywhere, it was mayhem, and it was a lot of work. So just make sure if you happen to see a Kidsway volunteer somewhere on campus today or this weekend, you thank them, especially Pastor Ashley and her team. They work so hard, y'all. Like, I don't think y'all understand, they work so hard to make this happen. So really, if you see somebody with a Kidsway shirt, just tell them how much you appreciate them, yes? All right, cool. So listen, when you are uh, six foot two and some 200 pounds and you are a black male teenager in high school, there is one expectation of you, okay? Sports. Yeah, I see some of y'all understood. Sports, that's right. And so because that was the expectation of me growing up, that's what I did in high school. I played soccer and I wrestled and I did track and field and I was always the fat boy who tried and had a good attitude. You know what I'm saying? They just let you on the tip. Come on, come on, he tried, come on. I was, I, was, I was decent at track. I got a little speed on me because I used to live next door to two mean Rottweilers that would get out, and so I learned how to, how to run. But in my heart, even in high school, I only did sports because it was expected of me. Uh, I was really actually more interested in the performing arts. I was interested in music and in poetry and in theater. And so as an adult, I really leaned into theater arts as a hobby because uh, it's good for you. And just as a side note, as a part of your self-care, you're actually gonna need a hobby. You need to have something that you do just to do it. It's not attached to how you make money or how you feed your family. It just feels good and it's what you do. But last year, I had the opportunity to play an iconic character. I got to play Donkey in the musical Shrek. It was a glorious time. I had so much fun. But in that show, there is a song sung by the lead female character, Fiona. And it's an interesting song because in it, in the show, uh, Fiona is actually played by three different people. There's a 10-year-old girl that plays young Fiona. There's a 16-year-old girl that plays 16-year-old uh, Fiona and then an adult that plays adult Fiona. And in the show, they sing this song and it has these lyrics. The lyrics to the song are, now I know he'll appear. Because there are rules and there are strictures. I believe the storybooks I read by candlelight. My white knight and his steed will look just like these pictures. It won't be long now, I guarantee. I know it's today. I know it's today. And in this, this song, the princess is locked up in this tower, and she's singing out her firm conviction that her rescuer is coming today. She says, it's a guarantee. And there's something about having a guarantee, isn't there? About knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that something is getting ready to happen, that, that something is getting ready to shift, that something is about to change, that something is happening today. There are so few things that are a guarantee anymore in life. As a kid, there were things that I just knew were going to happen. They were a guarantee. I knew at 7 p.m., dinner was going to be on my table. I don't care what else happened during the day. At 7 p.m., my mother was going to have something hot on the table. And now as an adult, I wake up and just, I say, I wonder if I'm going to eat today. I, I, I will see what happens today. It would be nice to have a guarantee. You know, to, to know and not have to wonder. 
And this experience of having a guarantee is something that the children of Israel have in Exodus chapter 12. They, they are fortunate enough to receive a guarantee, a promise that today is going to be the day that they receive the freedom that they had been crying out to God for for decades. And as I read this, this chapter, it makes me wonder how I would respond if the thing that I had been praying for for decades, if I knew it was going to happen today. You know, I mean, like, like we do worship well here and it's cute, but if you knew for sure that today was the day that God was going to do that thing you'd be praying for, but well, we'd probably have to tie you to your seat. You understand? We'd have to peel you off the altar because there's something about having a guarantee. If you weren't with us last week, we have been for the last month now in a series called Discovering God, where we are examining the experiences of the children of Israel, and we're looking at how those experiences taught the children of Israel a lot about who God was and also a lot about themselves. And we're thinking about how in our own life, in our own journeys, that, that our lives can teach us a lot about who God is, can help us discover God and help us discover ourselves. And so last week, we talked about our main character, Moses, and how he's, he is tasked with convincing Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to release the Hebrew people whom he had enslaved. And last week, we talked about how Pharaoh absolutely refused. He stubbornly resisted, and he suppressed his heart to reason and wisdom. And so God, in response, levies Pharaoh's country with a series of plagues. And we talked about how Pharaoh continued to be in the system where the cycle where Pharaoh would say, I'll let the people go if you remove the plague, and God removed the plague, and Pharaoh changed his mind. And we talked a lot about how Pharaoh experienced these plagues. We didn't talk a lot about how Israel experienced these plagues, experienced witnessing these plagues. I mean, I, I wonder what it would be like to watch God literally turn the Nile water into blood and then find out it was not enough to move Pharaoh to free you. I wonder what it would be like to see your country overtaken by frogs and then find out it was not enough to get Pharaoh to free you. To see your country overtaken by flies and gnats and locusts and fire and hail and thunder and darkness and boils. And still, it is not enough to move Pharaoh to free you. There can come a point in your situation where it seems like everything that could have been tried has been tried. And it's still not enough. I wonder what it had been like for them to watch. I mean, nine different plagues. And Pharaoh still says, I'm not going to let you go. I, I imagine some of the Hebrews were probably saying to themselves, you know what, we're never going to be free. It's never going to happen for us. If, if, if Pharaoh can resist all nine of these plagues, surely what more can God do? But that's the right question to ask, believer. What more can God do? Because the answer is always more. God is never out of options. God can always do more. God is never shackled. God is never bound. God is never overwhelmed. The Bible says in Ephesians 3 and 20 that God can do far more abundantly than you could ask or think. There's always more. And today we're going to look at that more. We're going to look at the final plague in the book of, of Exodus, the plague that serves as the guarantee 
that Israel would be free. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, the second book in the Bible. There are Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. Exodus chapter 12. We're going to begin at verse 1. When you have it, say amen. If you're still looking, say, wait on me. We'll wait. Exodus chapter 12. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for the household. Okay, we'll stop there. God says to Moses and Aaron, this shall be the beginning of months. That's an exciting verse for me because what it talks about is how God is telling them that the coming deliverance of Egypt was so significant that God tells the children of Israel, he says, mark your calendars. Right, write it down, because what I'm about to do is going to rearrange your year. I'm about to do something so major, your year isn't even going to start at the same time that it normally does. He says, what I'm about to do is a game changer. Everything's about to change, and it's a guarantee. It's a promise. God uses similar language like this in the book of Revelation where he says that he who is seated on the throne will make all things new. He says this, he says, and then he says, write these words down because, because these words are trustworthy and true. And I think that that's something that we need to be reminded of sometimes, that the promises of God are trustworthy and true. Like, like, real talk, like the promises of God are trustworthy and true. When God promises to strengthen you like he does in the book of Ephesians, that's trustworthy and true. When God promises to take care of your needs like he does in Philippians, that is trustworthy and true. When God promises to answer your prayers, when he promises to protect you, when he promises to work everything out for your good, when he just promises to be with you, you can take that to the bank. It's trustworthy and true. So God gives Israel this guarantee, but the guarantee comes with instructions because deliverance always comes with directions. We love deliverance, don't we? Oh, we love deliverance. We struggle with directions. <laughs> we can easily miss the directions that come with deliverance. So, so the guarantee that Israel gets comes with these instructions to prepare. And, and the instructions given to the children of Israel for their exodus moment have several uncanny similarities with another event that's going to happen 42 generations later. God tells him, he says, I want you to get a lamb. But not just any lamb. He says it needs to be, this is Exodus 12, 3 through 6. He says it needs to be a male lamb. He says it needs to be a male lamb without any blemish. Who do we know that's a male that doesn't have any blemish, that doesn't have any spot, that doesn't have any, no, any sin, any mistakes, that never, never did a single thing wrong? Who does that sound like? I just can't put my finger on it. He says, get a male, needs to be a lamb, it needs to be a male without blemish. He says, and every person and every household needs to have their own lamb. Kind of like how every person, every household needs to have their own relationship with God. Every person, every household needs to be able to cry out to the Lord for themselves. I can't praise God for you. 
Some of us come to church every week and we expect the worship team to praise God for us. That's not their job. We all got to have our own relationships. We all have to uh, repent for our own sin ourselves. We got to know Jesus personally. So he says, get a lamb. It needs to be a male lamb without spot or blemish. He says, then he says, it, it needs to, there needs to be no leftovers. He says, all signs of the lamb need to be gone by morning. And I think if you, if you remember, there's a story in the New Testament about a man that hung on a cross. But if you read that story, you'll remember that he was taken down from that cross before the next morning. That all signs of his crucifixion were gone by the next morning. And, 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 and isn't it true that Jesus' blood covers a myriad of sins? Sins that we have done, sins that we will do, so that there is no leftovers. There's no sin left uncovered. Hmm? Okay. And then God tells Moses, he says, the Israelites need to eat this lamb with haste. He says, do it quickly. In the same way that salvation is an urgent matter, once you hear the gospel, you need to respond to the gospel. Don't delay not even one day. He says, eat this lamb in haste. Verse 7, he says, then they shall take portions of the blood and put it on the doorpost and on the lintel of the house in which they ate. So God is specific about their need for the lamb's blood. The children of Israel would have to take the blood of this perfect lamb and it must be displayed publicly on the doorpost of the home. And, and wasn't Jesus' blood displayed publicly on a cross? The crucifixion didn't happen in some back courtyard where nobody could see. It happened on a hill. It was very, very visible. And, and, and isn't it true that his blood protects and covers those who wave it as a banner? And so 42 generations... After this happens in Exodus, we see Jesus get crucified at the exact same time during the Passover season, just like the lamb talked about in Exodus. And one of the things that I want you to always be thinking about when you're reading your Bible is where is Jesus in this? Even when you're reading the Old Testament, where do we see Jesus in this text? Yes? All right. So God says... Take the lamb, slaughter it, paint its blood on your doorways of your homes. But what's super cool to me is what he says to do with the rest of the lamb. Let's look at verse 8. He says, they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on a fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. He tells them, he says, I, I want you to take its blood and paint the doorways, but I want you to eat the rest. I want you, he tells him, he says, I want you to barbecue it. I want you to put it on the grill with some salt and pepper, put it on two pieces of bread, like make your lamb chop sandwich. As somebody who really has an affinity for sandwiches, I really appreciate this text, but most especially because it speaks to the reality that God is meeting their practical everyday needs that God is calling them to sacrifice, that he's calling them to do something hard and weird, but he still recognizes y'all are going to need dinner. Y'all are going to need to eat. We get so nervous about being obedient because we think it's going to cost us. We think that we're going to lose, the, the, our needs are not going to be met. And in this text, we see God saying, no, 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 I'm going to call you to sacrifice, and I'm going to call you to obedience, and sometimes that's going to be weird. Painting your door with blood is weird. However, I still recognize that when it's all said and done, you're going to need dinner, and I want to take care of that. Listen, following God does not mean that you're going you're to be neglected in your human needs. 
So God says, I want you to do this very specific act of obedience. And then he tells them why. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you. Notice it's not even for him. He says it shall be a sign for you. The blood is your reminder on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay. So the, the guarantee comes with the instructions, and God has just explained the why. But the why is kind of heavy. God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill, I'm going to execute the firstborn. And on the surface, that might seem like it, it wouldn't be very triggering for Israel. After all, God is talking about doing this to their oppressors. But I'll just remind you that in any system of slavery, usually the enslaved women are charged with being wet nurses and nannies for the people who enslaved them's children. So there would have been Israelite women that had raised Egyptian children. If you're a slave in somebody's house, you grow up with that family. You see them go through everything. You see their children take their first steps, and you see their children say their first words. And even if you don't have any attachment to any Egyptian children, there's something about children dying that's painful. So what do we do with this? How do we, how do we handle this? And so there are, a few, there are a few things that I want to give you to help you process what we just read, this idea that God was willing to kill the firstborn. You may be here today and be new to the church and thinking, you know, I just don't vibe with a, with a child killing God. Like, I don't know what to do with that. So I want to give you a few things that might be helpful in processing it. First and foremost, we have to remember that all life comes from God. The very first thing we learn about God in the Bible, before we learn that he's king and kind and loving, we learn that he is a creator. In the beginning, God created, right? That's his first attribute. So we know that he, all life comes from him, but additionally, all life is redeemed, is ransomed by him in and through the blood of Jesus. It's been paid for, which means that all life belongs to God. And if all life belongs to God, that means that he can do whatever he wants with it, including give it, including take it, including redeem it. And because of this, that means there's good reason to believe that when innocent children die, their lives are ultimately redeemed and restored in heaven. And we can believe this by faith because God is a just God. He's a good God, and he's a God who loves all life. How do we know? Most famous scripture in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. It doesn't say, for God so loved the Christians, for God so loved the church, for God so loved the holy. No, God so loved the world. That means everybody in it, all life in it. So the first thing, as we're reading this, remember, all life comes from God, is redeemed by God, and belongs to God. The second thing that we have to hold as we're processing this is really a universal principle that applies no matter what culture you go to. It is an agricultural principle. It is the principle of sowing and reaping. It is the principle that what you put in the ground is what you will harvest. And I want to remind you that Pharaoh and Egypt are harvesting what they put in the ground. Didn't Pharaoh order all of the, 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 the newborn Israelite baby boys to be executed? 
And wasn't Pharaoh warned, if you continue down this path, this is where we're going? And don't we see that, that Israel is God's firstborn, his chosen people? And so Israel, uh, Egypt, and Pharaoh are reaping the benefits of what they put in the ground. They're, they're really reaping what their leader put in the ground. And this is why we have to take the responsibility of leadership so seriously. This is why there is a heavier expectation on leaders because leaders, what they do, their conduct impacts everybody who's following them. And you may be sitting there thinking to yourself, oh, that's, that's good for you because of your job. But uh, I need you to understand Christianity has always been about leadership. Once you decided you, want, you were going to be a believer, you became a leader. And so whether you're a leader in the church or you're a leader at your job or you're just a leader in your household, it is a heavy responsibility that you need to take seriously because ungodly conduct has drastic and severe consequences. The reality is, and it's your fill in the blank if you're following with us online or if you're just taking notes, that sin always causes death. Sin always causes death. I find that preachers tend to vacillate between one extreme or the other when talking about sin. Either they stand in the pulpit and they condemn everybody in the congregation and tell them how horrible they are and send them home feeling crummy about themselves, or we don't talk about sin at all. And at Bridgeway, we endeavor to be balanced and to tell the truth. And while we don't want to be mean, angry, legalistic Christians, while we, we always want to encourage and uplift and fill people up, we still have to talk about the reality that sin has real-life tangible consequences in the world. The Bible is explicit. The wages of sin is death. And the issue with Egypt isn't simply that it sinned. And it's not like the Israelites didn't sin. The whole rest of the book of Exodus is about how Israel could not get it together. The issue with Egypt is that it did not follow the directions that were attached to the deliverance that was made available. So Israel's firstborns are not being spared simply because they're Israelites. If that were the case, we'd all be in trouble because most of us in this room aren't Jewish right? The Israel's firstborn are spared as a consequence of them meeting the requirements of observing that first Passover the way the Lord had instructed and being under the banner of sacrificial blood. They had to obey the command even though it might not have made sense. And today we're in a similar position where deliverance is made available to us, where salvation is made available to us, but there are directions. The directions are you need to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you shall be saved. But if you don't follow the directions, you'll miss the deliverance. I want to be clear, the Israelite children are not spared simply because they're Israelites. They're not spared even because of their goodness. God's mercy is not grounded in our goodness. Often we think it's about how good we are if I'm good enough. If I'm good enough, God will be merciful to me. No, God's mercy is grounded in who he is. In this text, God is actually fulfilling a promise that he had made to Abraham generations before. That's who God is, and his goodness is grounded in that. 
So we need to hold that all life belongs to God. He can do whatever he wants with it. We need to hold that this is an, uh, an example of reaping what you sow. We need to hold just the reality that God's, God's mercy is grounded in, in his goodness and that Pharaoh is, is reaping the consequences of not following the, the directions. But the next thing that I think might help us make peace with this heavy act of God taking the lives of the Egyptian firstborns is having some clarity about who these firstborns are. Uh, how many of you have seen The Prince of Egypt? Y'all seen that movie? Uh-huh. It, usually in movies about the Exodus story, uh, when they show the scene of the firstborn being taken, it's all infants and toddlers and babies that we see dying. And yes, there probably were some infants and toddlers and babies in this firstborn of Egypt. But let's think about really who the firstborn is. The firstborn is the rightful heir to the father. The firstborn is the person who leads in the father's stead. What that means is that in Egypt, there were probably firstborns who were in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s. There were probably firstborn people in all stations of life. And so I think it does a disservice to the text to only picture infants and babies and toddlers when there was probably a wider range of people included in this firstborn group. And many of them would have been current leaders currently upholding the system of slavery and oppression in Egypt. But here's what's really powerful to me. We see God say, I'm going to take the firstborn. But I want to be clear that we do not serve a God who is willing to take that which he is not willing to give because we see 42 generations later, God give his firstborn. We see him give Jesus his only begotten son for the sake of the world. We serve a God who is just, who is balanced, who is equitable. He is not a God that is not fair. And as we process all of this, as we're trying to make sense of what do I do with a God who would be willing to take the lives of, of innocent people, I think, one, we need to always hold the reality that, that there are some times when God is going to make decisions that are unsatisfactory to you. When God is going to do things that, that, that don't make sense to you, that frustrate you. And this is where we need to remind ourselves that God is good. And good by his own definition. Because see, historically, we see from, from, from our, our human story that uh, our definition of good isn't always right. There was a time, y'all know there was a time where we would tell pregnant women that it was good to smoke. <laughs> what? Who was in this meeting? Right? So what we know is that our definition of good is not always accurate. God is good by his own definition. And, and do we really think a good God will not also be just? Do we think that a, a good and just God would really be able to turn a blind eye to the suffering and oppression of his people in Egypt? Do we think that he would be okay with his beloved creation being harmed in that way? I think not. It's why I say it often, you better be careful how you treat people because God is sensitive about what's his. You better be careful with how you treat people because God is sensitive about that which he has created. And so, yes, there may be times where the actions of God are not pleasing to you. And you know what? That's okay. And maybe nobody's ever told you that it's okay to acknowledge 
that I may not like what I see God doing. I may not understand it. It's actually okay to acknowledge that. In fact, it's probably even healthy for you to take that conversation to God himself. To say to the Lord, Lord, I don't like what you're doing. I don't understand it. I don't appreciate your timing. It's frustrating me. And the beautiful thing is that we can do this, and it doesn't mean that we have to reject God. It doesn't mean that we have to dishonor God. You know, I really believe we can walk and chew gum at the same time. I really believe we're capable of multitasking. I can be absolutely furious with God. Uh, I can be in a place where I don't understand what he's doing and still praise him. I can be, I've sat right here in this room and been all kind of upset with the Lord and still said, Lord, I don't get it. I don't know what you're doing, but I praise you and I lift you and I celebrate you and I, I call you good even though I find your actions to be unsatisfactory. Let's pick up, it, pick up the story in verse 21. It says, Then Moses called all of the elders of Israel and said to them, Go select a lamb for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. He says, Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood and, and, and paint it on the basin and touch the lintel on the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And then he says, None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. See, this is where some of y'all would have fallen apart right there because some of y'all don't like being told what to do. Y'all have been in there fussing. Moses can't tell me what to do. He's not even Hebrew. You know, sometimes we just need to trust our leaders. This is a side note. Some of us, sometimes we just need to trust our leaders, especially when they're, when they're called by God to leadership. I'll preach that another time, but, but chew on that and, and, and digest that. Verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter into your house. What I need you to understand is that it takes blood. It takes blood. And if you want to know why I praise God, if you want to know why I follow Jesus, if you want to know why I really adore him, it's because I know that it takes blood, but it wasn't my blood. I worship him because I know that the wages of sin is death, but it wasn't my death. Because of Jesus, it wasn't me who hung on that cross. It should have been, but it wasn't. The text says, when he sees blood... He will pass over your house. And so I don't know about you, but if I had been given this instruction by Moses, I would have bathed in the blood. You understand? There would have been blood on my house. There would have been blood on my children. There would have been blood on my marriage. There would have been blood on my situation. I would have put blood everywhere because I recognize that where there is blood, that means there is sacrifice. And where there is sacrifice, there can be provision for salvation. Somebody needs to shout, there's blood on me. You understand? Yeah. So Moses, Moses told the children of Israel, he tells them, he says, never forget what God is about to do. Verse 24, he says, you shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, he says, when you get out of the thing that you're in and you start living into the promise of God, when you've been brought all the way through it, don't forget how you got there. Remember how you got there. Celebrate it every year. Remember what God has done in your life. And, you know, I think sometimes humans, we have the memory of a goldfish. I just, 
I think we really, we struggle remembering what God has done. It's like, I'm not talking to you if you're, if you're a new believer, but for some of y'all that's been in the trenches for a minute, I, I just don't understand why when we get up against something hard, we forget all the history we have with the Lord. We get into something hard and start falling apart as if God hasn't been God in our lives before. Don't you remember the last time that you were stressed out and you were in a situation and you didn't know how God was going to pull you through and somehow he just brought you right on through it to where you are today? I, sometimes I think we have the memory of a goldfish. And I think a part of that is because I, I don't think we tell our testimonies enough. The Bible says in Revelation that we conquer the enemy through the blood of the lamb. We got that part. And the word of the testimony. We forget that part. There's something about the testimony that is a part of our spiritual formation process. And I, I just feel like God is calling us to be a church of testimony. As I was preparing for this, I heard the Lord ask the question, what would happen in this region if at Bridgeway, all 5,000, 10,000 members of Bridgeway were always telling their testimonies? If every time you met somebody from Bridgeway, they were telling you about what the Lord had done, I feel like we could transform this region just by talking about what God has done. So I'm going to invite you to turn your attention to the screen now. I want you to check out this testimony from a fella from our church. Hi, my name is Tony, and I've been a member here at Bridgeway since 2019. Basically, I just wanted to share my story. In uh, 2010, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. I went through a very difficult time accepting uh, that I had multiple sclerosis. I was a father of two still, trying to do the best that I could just to progress with everyday life. I got to a point where I was working very heavily and in 2014 I was placed on disability. That led on to a depression, led on to difficulty uh, walking. Um, I couldn't drive anymore. I got to a point where I was just, just begging God, help me continue on with my life. I was offered uh, a trial for this medication um, that approximately 200 people in the world had taken. And I knew after asking God constantly to allow me to find something out there that could help me, he opened this door. And so I took the medication, which was a chemotherapy type medication. It was really hard on my body, but afterwards it sort of started flipping the script on how the disease progression was happening in my life. I was able to progress more in the church and be able to take part in different uh, activities with my daughters. I only have one symptom that's going away, but it's uh, in my right eye. I used to not see anything out of my eye. It was the very first symptom I had. I can now see again out of my right eye, which is absolutely amazing. That's not supposed to happen per Western medicine. Seeing that progression, it's, it's divine intervention and I can't do anything but praise God for what He has done in my life. I'm 
back at work. I'm taking part of the church again. I, I just can't praise them enough. I'm at the point today where I'm virtually 100% alleviated from symptoms. My doctors are looking at me. They are amazed at the, the progression that I have. They can't understand where I'm at. They don't see this kind of thing often with MS. It's an incurable disease. It's God who has is, who is cleaned me of MS. Yeah, y'all, I really feel the Lord calling us to be a church of testimony. I really feel him calling us. It's something that we can all participate in. And so introverts, you're going to hate me, but I'm about to ask y'all to help me preach. I want you to actually turn to somebody that you're sitting next to and just share one thing that God has done in your life. Just one thing with somebody sitting next to you. It doesn't have to be long. I'm only going to give you one minute. But do me a favor and just encourage somebody next to you by sharing one thing that God has done in your life. Go. If you're with us online, you can drop yours in the chat. Just share something, something that God has done good in your life. Yeah, talk to somebody. If you see somebody sitting there and nobody's talking to them, you invite them into your group. Don't be disobedient. I'll have them shine the spotlight on you. Come on. There is something, something about the testimony that is restorative. And I feel like we are being called to be that church. I feel like we are being called to be. I want that to be the central part of our identity. The, the Jewish people, that was the central part of their identity to this day. The Jewish people still celebrate Passover. They still celebrate what Yahweh has done historically in their lives. They have these things called satyrs. They serve a lot of wine at them, but they're a lot of fun. And it's because they, they make what God has done in their lives the central part of their identity. And so I'm, I'm issuing a challenge for this next week. We're calling it the A Story A Day Challenge. And my challenge to you, all of you, is every single day to tell somebody something that God has done in your life. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be deep. It doesn't have to be profound. But God has done something in your life. And to find somebody every single day and tell them what God has done in your life. I don't care who it is, your, your coworker, your neighbor, the stranger in the grocery store, but tell somebody something. I wonder what would happen in this region by just that little act. And so I'm asking you to do that over the next week. And if something really cool happens during one of those occasions, uh, email me and let me know. Jay Sanders at Bridgeway. I want to know what the Lord is doing through the power of narrative. I want people to say, oh, you must go to Bridgeway because you're always talking about what God has done. I know what church you go to. Yes? All right. We're going to pick it up in verse 29. It says, At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh. I want you to... Pharaoh's pride cost him his son. All oh, the cost of pride. If you got pride in your life, please put it down. 
At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Even the livestock have lost their firstborn. It is, it is the reality that, that the ramifications of sin are far-reaching, and it always costs more than you thought it would cost. Verse 30, and Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and all the servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. I want you to think about that numerically. This is not talking about a neighborhood. This is not talking about a city or even a state. In an entire country, there was not one house where someone was not dead. Do we see the consequences of sin? Verse 31, it says, Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up and go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go and serve the Lord as you said. Take your flocks and your herds as you said, and be gone and bless me also. And finally, finally, Pharaoh lets these people go. And I wasn't there, but I, I imagine that as Egypt cried, Moses cried too. I imagine that, that Moses' heart was grieved even as they were walking out of Egypt as he saw the, the ramifications of sin around him in this country. And you know what? He should have cried. Moses should have cried about it. You know, nothing makes me more nauseous than seeing believers revel in the suffering of other people even when those people deserve it, even when they called it on themselves, even when there are enemies. I, it makes me so sick to my stomach when I see believers celebrating suffering in somebody else's life. We need to be a people that allow our hearts to break when other people's hearts are broken. Again, even if they deserve it, even if it's the result of their own actions, even when there are enemies, I hope Moses wept. And I hope that as Egypt cried, I hope, that, I hope that Israel prayed. I hope that Israel laid on their faces and interceded for Egypt, for a brokenhearted country that was struggling with the ramifications of sin. And all I'm telling you is I hope that we as a country, as a country that struggles with all kinds of different ideas, I hope that as we see people who may not think like us and agree with us, as we see them suffer and struggle and hurt, I hope that our response is to lay on our faces and intercede on their behalf. As we close today, and we're getting ready to move this series into the, the next portion of this journey for, for Israel, I want you to walk out of here with just a couple of things, just a couple of things. I want you to walk out of here really understanding that sin has a real world impact that it is not just a theory, but that there are real consequences to sin. Last year, I had the opportunity to go to Egypt. I found out that I'm related to Ramesses III. That's the good-looking one. And uh, I went to Egypt, and I was really taken aback by how broken the country is. 
It's a, it's a country that is deeply steeped in poverty and, um, and challenge and political chaos. And, and I'm not saying that, that the, the chaos in Egypt is directly tied to this story in Exodus, but I do wonder what the country might look like today if their leader all those years ago had led them to the feet of God. Sin has real world impact. And there's, there's something that happens when we intentionally choose sin. I'm not talking about just I'm, I'm doing life and I'm trying to figure it out. There is some, some of y'all know that you have been choosing sin. And the reality is sin always causes death. And the good news is that if you're here today and you got like sin in your life that you've been choosing, there really is a pathway forward for you. There's a pathway forward that exchanges the, the death that we deserve for eternal life. The reality is none of us, somebody say none of us, none of us are good enough to escape the wages of sin. I don't care how holy you pretend to be when you come here. None of us is good enough to escape it. The only way to be protected from those wages is in and through the blood of the Lamb, in and through the blood of Jesus. And what that means is making a decision to respond to the invitation that Jesus gives us to be in relationship with him. It means telling Jesus you believe him. It means telling Jesus that you believe that he lived perfectly and died and was resurrected and that you want to be in relationship with him forever. That is all that's required of you. That is what it looks like to take your hyssop and paint your doorpost in blood. And maybe you're here today and you have never made that decision. Uh, today's your day to do that. Today is your day to do that. So I'm going to invite us to pray. I just want to pray as, as we close today. I'm going to invite you to just close your eyes and bow your heads. Close your eyes and bow your heads. Do it now. God bless you. Yeah, right now with, with every head bowed and every eye closed, uh, I want to pray for folks who are dealing with some specific sin, some things that you know, like you know the Lord is calling you to let that go. Since you've been in this room, you've been feeling a tug to put that sin down. Whatever that thing is, you've been feeling the Lord call you to do that. That's not because of good preaching. That's not because we got music playing. That's because the Holy Spirit is coming after you. And so if you're here today and the Lord has been stirring you up around putting a sin down, right now with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to invite you to acknowledge that before the Lord just by slipping up your hand. If there's something the Lord is asking you to put down, thank you, I see you, thank you, I see you, I see you in the back, thank you, God bless you, yep, I see you, thank you, thank you for your courage, thank you for your courage, I see you, yep, yep, I see you, I want to pray for you right now. Father, I know what it is to have sin in my life that tastes good, but I also know that sin is poison. And there are some of us, some of my friends in this room who've been, man, just like struggling with some sin, and, and it's hard to put it down. Father, first we repent of it, but we're asking for your help with navigating it. Lord, help us to relinquish the sin so that we don't end up in a situation like Pharaoh, in a situation where it cost us more than we were willing to pay. And so, Father, for each person that raised their hand, for each person that acknowledged to you that they are ready, they are willing, they want to be freed from that sin, Father, I pray that you would give them that freedom. I pray that you would break it off of them in Jesus' name. I want to keep praying. I want to pray for some folks who are here today 
who would say, I, I have never made the decision to walk with Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Or maybe you're here today and you would say, hey, I've made that decision, but I need to recommit. I need to reaffirm it. I've kind of walked away from that commitment. Uh, if that's you, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I would invite you to just slip up your hand if you would like to reaffirm that commitment. Thank you. I see you. Yep. I see you. Thank you. I see you. Yep. I see you. Yep. God bless you. I see you in the back. Yep. Yep. I see you. Let me pray for you. Uh, Father, you said that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, we shall be saved. We call you into account for that promise. And so, Father, right now, with and on behalf of my friends, Lord, we are saying we believe you. We believe that you're Jesus. We believe that you died and were resurrected for our behalf. And Lord, we are inviting you into our hearts. We are saying that from this day forward, we want every life experience we have to be shared with you. So Father, will you come into the hearts of all of us, of the folks who are, who are opening their hearts and saying, Lord, make this heart your residence. Father, come into our hearts that we might be saved and journey with you. In Jesus' name. I want to do one more prayer. You know, we all have a Pharaoh in our lives, somebody who we are watching them suffer the consequences of sin. We all have somebody in our lives who we have maybe even ourselves tried to minister to and tried to witness to, and, and we want to see something happen in their lives, but they're just, they're struggling, maybe because of their own choices and, and because of sin. And so I just want to pray for some of those people. So if there's somebody that, that comes to mind for you that you're connected to, maybe an, an, an addict, maybe somebody who's incarcerated, a mother, a sister, a brother, a friend, somebody who you are watching them struggle and suffer because of the consequences of sin. Will you slip up your hand? I just want to, yep, yep, yep. I see you. I see you. Yeah. Let's pray for those people. Father, uh, <laughs> we are attached to folks that we really, really love. And it breaks our hearts when we see some of those people struggle and suffer because of sin. And so, Father, we're lifting up all of those people to you. I don't know them, but you know them. You know exactly who people were thinking about. And, Father, it is our desire that those people would be saved, that those people would come to know you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bring them into freedom that you would pursue them relentlessly and recklessly, God, that you would overwhelm them with your love, that even right now as we're praying, that you would be leaning in their direction, that you would be calling them unto yourself. Father, our heart is to see them saved. So, Father, we pray that you would do that for each person who is, who is represented by somebody in this building, Father. We pray that we would get to see that happen, and we thank you for it in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, y'all, you know your homework, a story a day. Don't be disobedient. Go do it and have a wonderful rest of your week. Stay connected with us at bridgeway.church and on Instagram. We really love y'all. Have a good weekend.